0: Welcome to the Hello First Name podcast. The Hello First Name podcast revolves around the term personalization and is brought to you by marketing author Rasmus Holi, founder of Omnichannel Institute and chief experience officer at the marketing automation software company, Agilic. The podcast is based on the book Hello First Name. Each episode is based in turn on a chapter from the book, followed by a discussion of the very same chapter with an expert marketing practitioner in the following episode. As always, you can buy the book on Amazon or other bookstores. You can also choose to listen to it all for free on your favorite podcast service. You're also very welcome to download the abstract of the book for free, and all models, of course, are able to download. All downloads are sponsored by Agilic. I'll make sure to put a link to everything in the show notes. But you can always connect on LinkedIn, and I'll be happy to reply and help out. Hello, and welcome to the Hello First Name podcast slash webinar. Today we're going to be discussing uh, chapter number four um, with uh, Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you took the time.:
1: Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to uh,
0: looking forward to chatting. And I was, I was actually in, in the practicing or the rehearsal or the uh, research for, for this particular recording, I was, uh, I was trying to decide how I should introduce you, but really you are, wow. Uh, you have quite an extensive uh, resume, I mean, from Palo Alto to Shanghai, PhD from Princeton, TEDx, author of several books. And so I actually I decided that maybe I would throw that bone over to you and maybe in your own words, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. So um, originally I'm from Northern California and uh, grew up about an hour north of uh, the San Francisco area. Um, I've always been just fundamentally fascinated with other people Uh, So people, I think, are just these endlessly fascinating creatures, individuals as uh, separate entities, individuals in groups, uh, collective societies, really at any level of of social organization. I think people are are fascinating. So uh, there was sort of no mystery that I became a a psych major um, and then a neuroscience major. And then right after my undergraduate, I I went and pursued a a Ph.D. in neuroscience. So uh, my doctorate was um, what was focused on uh, sort of the neuroscience of perception and communication so essentially how we go from uh, the raw sensory signals in our environment the sights and sounds and uh, the tactile sensations that we receive how we interpret these how we build these rich inner landscapes that really Mm -hmm. only we can experience but then ultimately how we're able to communicate these ideas and these concepts in the social environment Uh, so that was my my uh, Ph.D. focus and then uh, after that I went into the business world and to be totally frank I thought this was going to be a, just a reaction move I thought this was uh, the, sort of the break I needed from being mm-hmm. in school for so long I was in like the, the 28th grade essentially at that point I just world. yeah exactly sort of get back in touch with the uh, the common man and uh, sort of ironically it was it was that sort of dipping my toe into the business world that sort of yeah. led me to this rich connection. Between neuroscience and business, and particularly neuroscience and marketing, and so so that's all in. Yeah, that's that's
0: fascinating. Neuroscience. It sounds, I don't know, maybe even a bit sci-fi to me. Neuroscience. I have this vague idea of what it is, but can can you uh, can you fill me in a bit on that? Psychology. I think I've got that nailed down. I'm from a family of psychologists, but neuroscience. What on earth is that? If you have to put in layman's terms.
1: So, yeah, I think neuroscience spans many different fields. So you can study the brain just as a a physical system. You can get into the organic chemistry of the brain. You can get Mm -hmm. into sort of the nitty-gritty details of synapses and neurochemicals and neurotransmitters. Uh, Me, I study neuroscience at a more systems level, which is trying to understand psychological mental processes at the level of their neural mechanisms. So if you look at something like learning or memory or emotional processing, or jealousy. Ultimately, if we understand the brain to be uh, sort of the, the underlying biology, which allows us to have all these mental faculties, uh, there's sometimes distinct mechanisms, distinct substrates, which uh, allow for these processes to unfold. And so, for mm. me as a neuroscience, that's my my level of focus: really understanding psychology at the level of neural processes. And that then goes into marketing and how we make decisions.
0: I assume. And how was that? how do you how did you get into sort of the the marketing application of of, of psychology and neuroscience then?
1: So that was really my big focus as I, I began to really explore this exploration was ultimately uh, th- this realization that marketers and neuroscientists are interested fundamentally in the same questions, as, as sort of strange as that marriage sounds. Uh, mm-hmm. That they're really more similar than I think we realize. Uh, So the the fundamental question, which both are trying to answer, is really trying to understand and predict human behavior uh, yeah. neuroscience is, is really attempting to do this more from a of course scientific standpoint that the pursuit there the north star is truth uh, However myopic however nuanced you're, you're aiming to get a better understanding of, of how the brain works and how the brain responds to its environment in marketing the same fundamental question is there you're trying to understand mm-hmm. and predict human behavior but now the north star is not truth per se but you want to have enough understanding such that you can have a course of action the North Star yeah. there is is practical in nature. Um, and to so they're not some kind of decision to happen earlier. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, different orientations, different goals, but really a, a lot of conversions in terms of the same basic questions they're attempting to answer. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um,
0: at least I found it um, important to cover in, in doing the book uh, Hello, First Name. Uh, that this podcast is built on I found it intriguing to at least scratch the surface uh, in terms of why does personalization uh, even work and so so that was the idea and thank you so much for, for coming I think you have a great deal uh, to contribute here you also have uh, multiple uh, books behind you uh, but but first of all, I think I would like to ask you from from your kind of uh, so, so one of the the earlier chapters was really about the definition of personalization, which I mean we can go on about for for <laughs> for hours uh, and indeed we, I kind of already did uh, with, uh, with with other people though. Uh, and So I've been visiting uh, other other P- PhDs uh, that actually did PhDs specifically in uh, personalization, and we we're discussing about the, the the definition of personalization and such. And I I think where we came to uh, in terms of conclusion was that there are many different perceptions of this so before we start getting too deep into this i think i'd like to hear so what is your perception of what personalization is i hope that's a fair question
1: totally fair question yeah so i think i would sort of define it as a, as a spectrum Uh, So you can imagine at one end of the spectrum, all customers in all regions in the total adjustable market uh, essentially have the same generic experience, and they have the same generic experience really at every level of... Uh, the customer journey so in the email copy they literally get an email which would be very counter to the title of your book saying hello customer or dear customer Um, and everybody gets that that same experience they get the same product they get the same everything along the customer journey Um, and then you imagine if you move more in the direction of a personalized experience um, every customer now has an experience at every level of the customer journey which is Catered and tailored towards their pre-existing preferences, or at least the perception on behalf of the brand of what they understand to be these prepotent preferences. And so, mm-hmm. at a very simple level, this is you know hello Rasmus instead of hello customer. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of the the content of the email, this is potentially yeah. um, you know personalized based on uh, even grammatical preferences or uh, linguistic preferences. Uh, in terms of the uh, that the types of email. That they get, and we're Mm -hmm. just talking about email here, but this is uh, you know potentially any uh, you know aspect of the customer journey and any window into the brand. um, There's an element of this personalization. So you imagine like the advertising could be voice or the treatment you get on the call center or. Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in paid advertising, of course, it's a it's a really big question of just how much you should hyper personalize a targeted ad, because, of course, you can get very detailed demographic, yeah. even psychographic information. You yeah. can get, you know, a, an individual advertisement that shows up on your Instagram, which is tailored to like you and maybe five other people. I mean, you can get yeah. to the level of, of granularity where it's, it's targeting, uh, you one, know, one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you can can get very, very personalized there. So yeah, I, I sort of see it as a spectrum from generic to sort of hyper personalized down to sort of the individual level of, of granularity. We are even discussing the like the case where you choose to
0: exclude someone from a specific type of communication. That's also actually an act of personalization. One that the uh, the recipient that would thus not get the communication would obviously never. Uh, they would never, never realize that they were part of the, the segment that was uh, excluded. But even that is a is, is a unique uh, customer experience, or one that is different from what you'd be giving the um, uh, the large masses. So even excluding people could even be an act of personalization. Uh, so relating relating to, to actually to music, where we say that the breaks in music are actually also uh, part of the music. So maybe the same is true for marketing or customer communication in general.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I would, yeah, just just to add to that, I mean, I think the just how a brand decides to communicate with an individual consumer is is an act of personalization. So, you know, they may surmise based on the yeah. demographic information that they have that they don't answer emails and that, you know, classic snail mail or flyers is the best way to reach that individual yeah. consumer. And Definitely, so, yeah. or no communication at all that, you know, they don't need communication or, you know, yeah. they, they, it's not going to a The dark eye and such. Absolutely. So yeah, marketing communications I think at every level can be can be personalized. So so in the book uh, and in the chapter about how um, why personalization
0: works, uh, I discovered this this theory about the fundamental motives framework, which sort of sits on top of the Maslow uh, pyramid of needs, and uh, I came across some 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 thinkers and some uh, some academics who were sort of relating any marketing message and the reason that it works back to some kind of deeper need, the fundamental motive that we have as human beings. And then that could be like finding a mate or um, staying out of harm's way or not getting ill or um, it could be looking after your children and so on. And any of these... um, uh, motives could then be active at any given point in time for any different individual. So, I mean, if I'm a- at the club and I'm single, I would have one kind of motive, most likely, whereas if I'm at home uh, taking care and talking to my daughter, that's that's another uh, motive that would thus be active, even though I'm the same person. So so that was sort of how I tried explaining why personalization work. If you can find out what is now currently active with, or most likely active with, one particular a recipient and you can stress that and tone that up and you can align your communication with that motive then you'd be off to, to, to making people uh nudge people to make that decision they would maybe have done otherwise but you they make it uh, earlier or they make it instead of almost making it or uh, they buy more or they buy earlier or whatever but but from from your sort of neuroscience background what would your explanation be uh, as to why personalization works in the first place
1: I think we can look at it from a couple different angles. I mean, I do think uh, that the social elements uh, that you've indicated with, with Maslow and, and his contemporary Leon Fessinger, we have this sort of fundamental social drive to be understood, to, to feel valued by our social group. And one of the ways in which we establish this, this sort of sense of uh, felt value is feeling as if our interlocutors know us. And, of course, a a signal that they know us is that they have come to understand our preferences. They know our name. They address us uh, in the ways that we we, we prefer. And so I think Mm -hmm. just there's a sense of warmth that we get from these types of – yeah, yeah. The, these types of interactions. So I think there, there's definitely the social element of it. Um, yeah. There's also good evidence at, at sort of a, a, a different level in terms of our basic attention. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you d- dove into this in the book, um, but there is this cocktail party effect, which is yeah. a, a fairly robust. That. Yeah. yeah, which is a fairly robust um uh sort of attentional phenomena so you're it's named the cocktail party effect because of course you're in a cocktail party and you're thoroughly engaged in this conversation just with this person right across from you and you're talking Mm -hmm. about something totally you know unrelated um and then you hear sort of the background your name you hear rasmus and you weren't paying attention to that conversation yeah you weren't eavesdropping but now your your attention is exogenously driven towards yeah. the other conversation. And so there's this indication that we have this sort of baseline level of attentional bandwidth, which is mm-hmm. always on reserve for uh, what Baddeley called uh, the, the sort of highly salient items, our names yeah. being sort of one of them. Um, yeah. There was a recent replication of this uh, not in the auditory domain, but in the visual domain, um, which is really interesting that as we're sort of scanning through images and we're just in this very low attentional state scrolling through Instagram. But if you see yeah. a picture of your own face um mm. it's it's a bit like the cocktail party effect where that yeah. is now going to trigger this sort of reserve of attention that wasn't even on at, at the moment of of uh, the moment right before you saw that and so this has led to a different type of personalization in terms of of sort of face based personalization where yeah. data about individual faces are marketed back to those customers because it is sort of highly prioritized in terms of their attentional uh, so what they're trying to display images in front of people that look similar to the actual people Yeah, or in many cases are their own faces, and they're sort of put onto a, uh, yeah, so you imagine an ad, for example, for, uh, I don't know, some some Nike shoes, and instead of, you know, a generic model wearing these shoes, it's literally your face, and maybe even your body, but are wearing the shoes, so it's sort of superimposed with AI. My body, but slightly fitter. (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's uh, okay. I actually had parked this this topic for later, but I cannot not talk about creepiness uh, right now. So can can you can tell us a bit about sort of your your view on creepiness? When do you get over that thin line where things become creepy instead of personal?
1: So I think there, there's uh, sort of a, a different threshold for different people. Uh, I think yeah. modern consumers of, of digital media, I think, have a baseline level of understanding, especially in the U.S. I know the, the Europe yeah. is, is a little bit stricter about these things with GDPR. I'd be totally US, freaked out by my like my, my face <laughs> on an ad, really. Oh, totally. So, yeah, I think uh, the, the median American consumer is, is – I think accepting tacitly with a certain level of a personalization which comes from data. They know that every time they log into either Android or go on Chrome, yeah, yeah. you know there's cookies tracking you and this and that, and you go into a different site and you see the same ads and and you know people get it at this point, going on you know five, ten years of this type of data tracking. Um, so I think there there's sort of a tacit level of understanding. Um, I, I think it's when this data gets uh, sort of funneled into a broader uh, attempt to personalized where they really see the full extent of it um, yeah. and you see across potentially different websites different information being pulled mm-hmm. and synthesized uh, in a message that you know could only be created if this data um, you know was, was drawn from these different sources outside the awareness of the consumer so I think it, at that point it begins at least to the median American consumer to, to start feeling a, a bit creepy. Yeah so i found that
0: Especially on advertising, there's very little you can do in terms of uh, explicit personalization. So if, you, if you're showing it too, uh, if it's too obvious that you're personalizing something particularly for me and you're showing it to me in the ad why you're showing it to me, then for a lot of people that will be uh, freaking them out. So that has to be a bit more. I, so I distinguish between explicit personalization where it's visible for the end customer that they are being personalized towards versus implicit personalization where it's more subtle and it could be a coincidence. So... So it's okay, uh, at least that's 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 my sort of uh, uh, working theory, that it's, it's more okay to do the explicit personalization on uh, owned media, such as email, or even on the website if you're logged in. So you can call me out by name, you can show me my previous orders, you can show me what I just looked at. And I'm realizing that's okay because it's... I mean we're we're just right here whereas an an ad is something that is out there, and I'm having this idea that other people could potentially be seeing this as well, whereas the intimacy of my mailbox is something that I know belongs to me, and it thus it's not not that uh, that dangerous
1: mm yeah, no, I think that I think that makes a ton of sense. I think as well that that there's a lot of evidence to indicate that consumers tend to think sort of very. Uh, utilitarian about these things and that they yeah. really care about sort of the, the end goal of this data collection and this synthesis. So I think there's some brands that, that co- are collecting massive amounts of data through yeah. hyper-personalizing experiences, um, but it's understood from the consumer that this is not done in an attempt to, to Sell them things that they didn't know that they wanted, and to hyper personalize, yeah. them to sell their data to third parties, but it's done to enhance their experience with the brand. So I think yeah. Spotify is is the perfect example. They collect a ton of data from consumers, well, yeah. and uh, they are ultimately utilizing this in large part to to personalize the experience, to uh, to, to augment this, uh, augment the, the value of the platform for the consumer. And I think Spotify wrapped is the um, sort of the best example of a campaign that showcases that. that. I mean, all other, all of the digital, you know, digitally native brands are trying to hide the fact that they're collecting data and personalizing the experience. And it's a downside that no user gets the same experience on Amazon, on Facebook, on Instagram, et cetera. Everyone gets a very different experience on Spotify, but on Spotify, they created a brand and they created a a creative execution that really celebrates the fact that we're all different. we all know that you're different because of your listening patterns and this yeah, and that. And we're... Enjoyed, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. they've showcased this as a positive. So I also think the end goal and what's communicated as the end goal to the consumer also makes a big difference in terms of this, uh, this creepiness factor. Totally. And
0: I even think there's an upsell opportunity in this Spotify wrapped because it's it's very clear for non-family account holders that once your toddler start a, listening in on Kiddish music on the Spotify that suddenly becomes part of your of your uh, your, your yearly rundown and it's uh, that's that's a clear indication that you'll be uh, you'll be needing a, an upgrading to a family account yeah so we'll be okay. talking a lot about or at least we'll be covering a bit later I'll be uh, asking you about how uh, personalization can affect the brand and I do think Spotify is a brilliant example of that because they took it in but let's let's park that for, for, for a moment here uh, so there's this thing about um, there's a lot of talk in, uh, in in Europe at least right how about consent and having have you given marketing consent and have you been have you given as a consumer the consent to your data being used here and there but what I've seen at least and, and me and the co-authors have experienced is that there's one thing is sort of having the uh, the legal consent for capturing data and personalizing content and such but there's also the, the thing about having an emotional consent and really coming back to the uh, to the creepiness aspects that you you may have sort of secured uh, the consent legally in the bottom of page x uh, in your terms and conditions and so you may not be be sued but you can if you don't have the emotional consent and if the consumer isn't aware that you are collecting this data then using that for explicit personalization can become super creepy because you're overstepping the boundaries of the emotional consent Maybe that could – does that fit with your sort of uh, description or understanding of uh, of, of the creepiness uh, border?
1: That really resonates. There was a um, – I don't know if you saw this, but there was an artist in Brooklyn a, a few years ago that had an exhibit that uh, they called Terms and Conditions. And what they did is they like <laughs> printed out – Uh, you know, of of some of the biggest uh, tech companies, like the terms and conditions, like fully, fully out. Yeah, in like, you know, just regular Times 12, uh, you know, Times Roman font. And these things were like 18 pages long. And uh, it was uh, to sort of showcase the fact that, yeah, technically, legally, when you click that, you know, small button, you know, that, that is the difference between you logging onto your account and not. Uh, yeah, you're you're signing all these things away and you're you're consenting in, in a very legal definition of the term. But can any you know, does the median, you know, American consumer or Danish consumer have no. the you know legal ability or the cognitive wherewithal to, to fully Obligio. evaluate yeah, to really to fully evaluate uh you know what they are are signing up for. And I think that the bigger issue as well is that we live in a uh In a world, in a a consumer world, which there's very low substitutability between these two platforms. So when all of your friends got on Amazon or when you're a small business owner and, uh, you know, you need to sell on Amazon or you need to sell on Walmart or you need to advertise your company on Instagram. And, yeah, maybe you have ethical qualms about, uh, you know, the type of data that's collected. You know, what business owner in the universe can afford not to have a free Instagram account and to showcase their, their products and services there? And Make so sense. there's not really an alternative that is going to uh, treat their data differently. Um, yeah. So even if they are going to go through, you know, all this legalese and and pick and choose and this and that, you know, there's such low substitutability that they're they're implicitly coerced, I think, into uh, signing on to a service that, uh, that that goes against their their ethical beliefs. So yeah, yeah I think you know strictly from. a – yeah, so I think you know, strictly from sort of a legal standpoint, you know, it's there. Um, but you know, practically speaking, emotionally speaking, uh, you know, I don't think it, they really have people's full consent. No. Mm. All right, Let, let's move on a bit. So we, you and I, actually recently
0: attended the same conference in Sweden, uh, the Dialogue Conference, uh, and in your presentation, you were talking about personalization and personalization within the, the within customer experience. And within that, you're also touching upon the concept of serendipity. Can you just explain to me and the the audience a bit how that relates to personalization and sort of what your thoughts are around that?
1: One of the big ideas from the the talk is that um, personalization, and maybe maybe we'll get into this, uh, personalization, I think, does have an upper bound. Um, that of course we do like emails that uh, you know have our first name in them and we do like some degree of personalization. Um, but what if we take this idea to its, its logical conclusion? We give consumers exactly what they think they want really at yeah. every level of, of granularity and where does that leave us? And there's some interesting ideas to indicate that uh, what we ultimately want when we can have anything are are things that we can't predict and can't expect. And that our pre-existing preferences uh, that could potentially be measured and captured uh, can't ultimately be synthesized to predict a future response. Because ultimately what we want is something that violates existing expectations. And so the the talk really focused on this – Absolutely. So it was two two prescriptions at the talk or or at least two uh, sort of things that um, I would I would consider, uh, you know, worthwhile for for marketing managers to consider. Uh, One is is sprinkling in a bit of of unpredictability into the customer journey, sort of knowing generally what consumers want um, and then delivering something within that that range of likability, something that they couldn't have predicted ahead of time. So could be, um, what could that be, for instance? Sure. So there's a couple of examples in the talk I gave. Uh, Pretty much, for example, has this great uh, sort of practice where they give every consumer, or every barista rather, uh, what's called the Random Acts of Kindness Fund. And yeah. so they can just comp any uh, patron's order just because, you know, they, they had a feeling about them. And so from yeah. the perspective of the consumer, they're fully expecting to pay for this $5 copy. They, they yeah. you know, go up to the, the counter and wow. it comes as a surprise. And so, you know, you, you uh, contrast that with, what typically happens, which is you have a loyalty card, you you punch, yeah. you know, 10 coffees, and you know you're going to get your 11th one free, you go to the store, you get that free coffee, it's fine. But, you know, free coffee by surprise, uh, I think it's going to galvanize yeah. that, uh, that that pleasure response. And there is and you some kind indication. kind of already factor that into your
0: experience that I am going to get coffee number 10. So what if I get number five and I didn't think about it, then suddenly that's
1: unexpected and it's a
0: fantastic experience.
1: Absolutely. And and we've been studying this at the level of neuroscience for decades now. This is a very sort of well understood response called the prediction error, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we tend to uh, enjoy experiences which are sort of in line with expectations, but we enjoy much more experiences which positively violate our expectations. This leads to this sort of surge of uh, a dopaminergic response that sort of deep in the brain, a region called the nucleus accumbens, which is is uh, essentially tantamount to our brain's pleasure center. And the nucleus accumbens is really most tantalized by this these sort of positive violations of expectations. So it's of course worth noting that surprise across the board. Uh, you know, isn't a guarantor of of you know positivity. Of course, you know I could, uh, you know, you stop somebody in the street and you insult them, and they weren't expecting that. That's a surprise, but that's not going to brighten anyone's day. So it has to be a pleasureful response. It has to be positively surprising. Um, yeah. So that that seems to be something that uh, you know is is um, yeah worth worth testing at least within a customer journey. Yeah, and, and when do you think people or companies should should start with sort
0: of the the more surprisingly uh, seemingly random act of, acts of kindness because i mean you were we we're discussing this from a perspective where people had already hit the glass ceiling of personalization so they already i mean there was an upper level to uh upper, um, upper limit for the personalization efforts and they already hit that and then sort of next level would be uh, doing the uh, the serendipity uh, thing but 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 in, in reality, and at least the companies there that that, that that I uh, talk to and that I interview also for the uh, for the book and for the podcast, they may be doing good, they may be doing well, but they're no near any ceiling of glass ceiling of how much they could personalize. So, are we there yet? Should should people sort of do more personalization until they get closer to their glass ceiling, or should they start? When should they start throwing this serendipity, random act of kindness
1: thing into the loop? I think it really depends on uh, the brand. It really, it, it really depends mostly on the consumers. So there's there's some yeah. good research now that, as as a general phenomena, we we do like these pleasurable surprises. We we do feel senses of connection towards brands and products that provide these serendipitous moments, but. There's a lot of individual differences. There's a lot of demographic differences. So the biggest one to pull out is, is of course, uh, loss aversion. So people that are, are yeah. very sort of risk-averse, that are a bit more conservative, uh, you know, tend not to enjoy surprises. They just want what they want, and that's fine. And, of yeah. course, this is going to differ, you know, by industries. If you look at, I don't know, banks or insurance companies, you know, uh, th- these are, you know, very conservative institutions. They tend to be highly regulated. And consumers come to expect a certain level of of service from their bank, they don't want their bank necessarily to dip into surprise and serendipity and and all of these things. They just want their bank to give them, you know, absolutely. Though I should say as well that there is some evidence in in behavioral finance that um, having savings accounts that do have a very low chance of a high yield um, are actually preferred to a, a stable uh, but moderate yield. So if you give people the option, hey, do you want okay. a guaranteed like lottery? You know, yeah, sort of a lottery effect. So if you do you want yeah. you prefer a guaranteed, you know, two and a half percent you know savings yield, or yeah. do you want a 0.01% chance of you know ten thousand dollars being yeah. deposited into your account, you yeah. know, people do prefer this sort of lottery because they, they tend to discount these save, these low savings rates anyway. So there's some yeah. exceptions there, but you know, there is evidence to suggest that, suggests that it, in certain industries people do just want what they want essentially for the optimal customer
0: uh, customer experience would you then advise to do like uh, fewer and bigger uh, surprises or sprinkle it uh, a, lo- a lot of smaller surprises out over the customer journey
1: it's a, it's a good question there? yeah i mean i think it's, it's probably worth you know zooming out a bit as well because i think different brands are going to have different orientations to this. Yeah. Um, so that the, I think the biggest uh, sort of perspective there is is looking at their market orientation. Are they uh, a market driving force? Yeah. Are they sort of, you know, moving the industry? Are they telling consumers, this is what you should value? Are you a luxury brand? Or are you, you know, Apple or Bang & Olufsen? Are you sort of telling consumers, this is cool, this is how music should be listened to? Or are you a market-driven force where you know you're, ga- you're you're garnering evidence from consumer bases and then you're giving them what they already want? And if you're a market uh, a market-driven uh, force and you're really responding to the marketplace, um, you're in this business of of really trying to uh, personalize and you're really in the business of trying to hyper-personalize experiences with pre-existing preferences, not engaging in, in really too much surprise and and serendipity because that's not the way consumers tend to see you. They want you to, Hmm. you know, give them what they already want. If you're Timu, if you're Walmart, if you're Nissan, you know, you're you're giving the market what they already want. Um, But – yeah, exactly. And, and so if you are, um, again, sort of a market driving force, I think you do have a lot more leeway and leverage. And there's more expectation on behalf of your yeah. consumers in terms of your, your brand position of you know how much you're going to put forward into the market, which they didn't expect, which they didn't ostensibly, explicitly want. Yeah. Um, so I think in that instance, you have much more leeway to deliver these sorts of surprises and these sorts of serendipitous experiences through the lens of this, this market driving brand. So what I didn't know
0: I wanted but now I know and I truly want it now and yeah that that makes sense hmm. talking about branding uh, we're getting back to that so your latest book is called branding that means business uh, and uh, it's had uh, outstanding reviews uh, by the way and uh, that leads me back to the to the sort of the topic that we brief, briefly touched upon uh, earlier with uh, with uh, with Spotify and how do you see the sort of the relationship between branding and a personalization can can personalization affect brand perception or even the the core brand how do you see that
1: I, I think it certainly can uh, I think personalization the way I've come to think about it and uh, and maybe we'll disagree a bit here uh, is, is that personalization is is really a tactic um, so it's it's ultimately downstream from the brand strategy yeah um, so i a think brand... that would
0: be the general uh, sort of perception out there
1: okay got it got it yeah so that that's really the way that i've i've you know come to think about it so the brand strategy is, is sort of driving you know how the, the the brand interacts with customers in terms of the four p's in terms of mm. specific ways in which emails are written et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, i think brands can adopt personalization a bit more upstream at the level of of the brand strategy so i think again as we spoke about you know if you're a, a market driven brand you necessarily need to personalize i think um, because that's really the expectation. If you're market-driven, uh, I think you're in less of a position necessarily to need to personalize everything. Um, you're certainly not personalizing products, um, the most direct vessel of yeah. value. You might personalize your, your marketing communications to the preferences of consumers, to the name, et cetera. But you're not giving consumers what they already wanted at a product level per se. Yeah. Um, so I think ultimately the decision of, of whether to personalize, how much to personalize, is decided a bit more upstream with the level of, of the brand strategy?
0: Yeah, so I think we have examples of actually both. I've, I've found that at least uh, like companies within luxury, uh, high-end luxury, they tend to not personalize. They almost seem to talk about uh, themselves and their products and how fantastic uh, they are. Uh, and if you don't get it, then there's obviously something wrong with you because they're like this perfect trend-setting company designing the perfect bag or whatever. And that almost reflects in a self-segmentation of the people that subscribe to that belief and say, yes, I am the, whatever, Chanel uh, woman uh, that you want me to be, uh, and I'll pay an insanely amount of money for for the perfect bag, because that will enforce who I am and who I want to be as an individual, going back to the fundamental motives. So they tend to, in my opinion, not personalize as much. I do believe, however, that they could benefit from a maybe more uh, uh, like clienteling way of uh, personalization so it would be your local uh, the local person in the store with whom you have a trusted relationship where you could personify the communication even from a scalable point of view but it would seem as if this particular whatever email or recommendation would be coming from that particular individual that you know and you could start a uh, personal conversation from there, answering directly, replying to the email, or whatever. But still, the tendency is that the the more high end, luxury or brand oriented uh, communication is, the less it's personalized. So are, are they just opposed? Because I also see the the opposite examples. So it's it's hard to imagine uh, Amazon without personalization. It's hard to imagine. Uh, I mean, I could to some extent imagine Spotify without it, and I believe that's how they started. Also, I mean, just by being able to to actually deliver all these uh these tunes to you at a, at a flat fee that's a fantastic value proposition but the amount or the the degree to which i enjoy the, the the fact that i can take one particular tune and i can start a radio from there on and it will generally be a good uh radio station that would be only for me based on what i've liked and the, the tune that sort of kicks it off and, and my, my yearly rundown and whatever. I've genuinely come to appreciate the personalization within the platform. I think for, for Netflix and HBO as well, I think it would be hard to, 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 to think about these platforms without uh, personalization. So, so for them at least, it seems as if uh, personalization is a very core part of their value proposition
1: absolutely yeah i mean i think in in any dual-sided marketplace personalization is is going to be you know really important so yeah amazon um you know if you're in ride sharing services uber easy drive like these are very important i think to to personalize because this is essentially a, a marketplace that you're tapping into as a as a consumer um any digital platform that at a product level um, has just a huge corpus of uh, you know potential media. So Netflix, for example, you know they have uh, you know as deep as the Mariana Trench worth of uh, you know of, of potential content for you. And so yeah. how do they know what to what to serve you? You know that's yeah. going to be based on your viewing preferences. That's going be based on your demographics. That's going to be based on you know all the top of, of this. Even all, yeah, absolutely. So it yeah. it completely makes sense to to want to try and personalize those experiences. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the, what you mentioned in luxury brands, you know, makes a ton of sense. And I think, you know, the counter to that would be uh, sort of the market driving forces within media, which would be in HBO, for example, yeah. which releases much less, has less inventory, has less mm-hmm. media, and is, is not necessarily in the business of, of serving existing consumers what they already want. But in the yeah. business of saying, we're HBO, we know media, we know movies, yeah. we know production, here's Succession, here's Game of Thrones, here's Sopranos. Yeah nobody asked for long form storytelling but you got tony soprano yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so yeah. i think there there's um you know a bit of that really in every industry um going Maybe back to one... in, the... in every in every company because i find that a lot of
0: um... Uh, companies actually doing both and I believe they should so there's a time and place for everything so you'll be having sort of one track of your communication which is really about uh, getting your brand story out there and the brand story doesn't necessarily have to be about the consumer the brand story can be about the brand there should be a place for for talking about like your unique uh, selling propositions and what you stand for and how you want to change this world and your purpose and whatnot and that doesn't have to be around the end customer but then on the on the other hand you should be doing also a bit more uh, tactical, the, the campaigns, the seasonal campaigns, the Black Friday, the, the, the Black Week, the um, uh, Christmas sales, the uh, back from school and whatever, as well as the, the automation part where you are in, indeed triggering a uh, certain communication to individuals depending on data that is totally individual for them. And so I think they can coexist and that you could and should do both the branding and the core branding and the, the big stories, but also uh, while you, you, you can do the, the personalization on the side.
1: Totally, yeah. I don't think they're they're mutually exclusive. I mean, when we when we first started speaking, we, we talked about sort of defining personalization and this idea yeah. of a, a spectrum, uh, you know, between a generic experience for all and a hyper personalized, highly granularized experience for every individual consumer. And there's a range of, of possibilities in between uh, that different brands can adopt. Um, I, I do think that ultimately, uh, if a brand is only you sort of dedicated themselves on the personalization front, you know, that's fine but that's going to be exhausting and that may not work yeah. in the long term because yeah. none of that scales and you're just competing yeah. on a tactical level and if you're oh. just competing on a tactical level, uh, there's nothing really for you to rest your, your laurels on and there's nothing yeah. enduring uh, that's going to differentiate you between uh, another competitor and really this this more enduring differentiator really is the brand and so I do think there's you know, some degree of dedication that should be, uh, you know, delegated towards, towards the brand building efforts as well. Great. All right. We're
0: drawing towards an end here. So actually, I'd like to ask you one last question, uh, Matt. So like from, on a personal level, what's your own favorite example of personalization that you've experienced where you were in the receiving end of the personalization?
1: Uh, so it would be a, it's a, it's a really generic answer, ironically, for a, per- a question about personalization. But yeah, to me, it's uh, it's one we spoke about already, which is is Spotify Wrapped. I, I mean, yeah. I think that they just they, they just knocked this one out of the park. Yeah. Um, you know, really every you know digital company they they suffer from this uh this real difficulty of of not being able to build community because every consumer has a different experience so if you are instagram no two feeds look alike if you're on tiktok nobody gets the same videos if you're on amazon nobody gets the same marketplace items and it's the same for spotify but what they've done is they've they've turned a ostensibly negative part of being a digital company a digitally native company and they've Really flipped on its head and said, "Yes, all of you are listening to our uh, to different music and to utilizing our platform in different ways. We're yeah. collecting data from all of you, and this is usually thought about as a very negative thing. But we're flipping the script and we're putting this towards a positive thing. We're being very transparent about the level of data that we're collecting, uh, and we're we're showcasing the incredible diversity uh, in our audience and in our market." Yeah. And I think the creative execution of this idea is also brilliant. I mean, they keep it relatively consistent each year. It's your, you know, your top five podcasts, your top five songs, top five, you know, artists. But, you know, each year there's a new twist on it. So some years it's, you know, you have it, a. a Color that these songs sort of represent or your aura, and so there's always something to look forward yeah. to every year. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned this before, but there may be some upselling here. So, I, I do have some friends actually that are like, Oh, my you know, my four year old started telling Alexa what Spotify songs to play, and that's going to ruin my Spotify playlist. So, now I have to get a family account so I can have my own distinct, <laughs> you know, totally. daily exactly. discovery. And my I have to build up my data for my uh, you know, my Spotify wrapped coming up in December. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's 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 really brilliant, and especially in its industry. I mean, it, it just stands out so much with the degree of of personalization and, and how they've really positioned this campaign.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably the subscription that I would be least likely to cancel because I cannot yeah. imagine you know throwing away my playlists or. And if even if I could, I would get lynched uh, by my children <laughs> because of the family account. So that's huge, login. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for for joining us. It's been a huge pleasure uh, discussing this topic with you. And um, I think uh, for for our listeners, uh, this is this is the end of the the episode here. Remember that you can uh, download an abstract uh, of the book. Uh, hello first name i'll make sure to put the link in the show notes uh, you can also download all the the models and the illustrations uh, from the book uh, as you see fit and uh, remember that you can of course subscribe to either the uh, the spotify or the uh, apple podcast or any podcast feed that uh, this appears in or you can be looking at the um, the videos from the from the webinar discussions that i am having uh, every other week uh, with experts with whom i discuss this such as uh, matt here so thank you very much for for listening in and i hope that you'll uh, continue to follow the series thank you in our next episode which is a classic audiobook chapter we'll listen to chapter five marketing without personalization personalization hasn't been around forever so to get closer to an understanding of what it is, we'll be looking close at how marketing works if we take personalization out of the equation.